0: Under normal circumstances, the white sand beaches of Dunkirk in northwest France would be picturesque and quite serene. Now, however, they become a place of fear, chaos, and even death. For five days, the British Expeditionary Force, along with large numbers of both French and Belgian troops, have been stranded on these selfsame stark white beaches. Driven to the edge of continental Europe by the enemy, in this case the Germans, following the Battle of France, the Allied forces bitterly await their fate, uncertain of what the future holds. To make matters worse, for the past two days, the Luftwaffe, or aerial combat branch of the German military, have carried out several attacks along this stretch of coastline in an attempt to take out as many Allied soldiers as possible. Looking out at the vast expanse of sea that separates France from Great Britain, one can almost see the fabled White Cliffs of Dover across the way, a mere 44.3 miles, or 71.29 kilometers away. This was the harsh reality and dire situation for some 300,000 British, French, and Belgian troops between May 21st and May 26th, 1940, as they were left to ponder if their respective nations had abandoned them to the enemy German forces. But little did they know at the time that not all hope was lost. As they waited in fear and despair, a hastily organized armada of 800 vessels was being dispatched from the southeastern coast of England to rescue the servicemen from the enemy's clutches. From massive military ships to commercial and civilian boats, the entire operation took nine days, and by the conclusion of the final day, all 338,226 survivors have been rescued and shipped safely back to Britain. What led up to the Dunkirk evacuation? How did the Allied troops become stranded in the first place? And how did this event change the course of the war? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. While the 1930s were marred by several military and political skirmishes and campaigns throughout the world, historians unanimously placed the start of World War II with Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland on September 6, 1939. In the days following this event, both Britain and France declared war on Adolf Hitler's Third Reich and simultaneously imposed an economic blockade. With rumors circulating of the Führer's ambition to invade neighboring countries, the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, as well as French troops were dispatched to the French-German border to defend the country from the threat of conquest. In the ensuing eight months, little actual fighting took place. This period, known as the Phoney War, allowed the British and French to plan large-scale operations meant to cripple the German war effort. Some of the proposed plans included an invasion of Norway to take control of Germany's primary supply of iron ore, a strike against Russia to siphon off the German oil supply, and the establishment of a combined British and French front in the Balkans and southeastern Europe. Of the three, however, only one ever came into fruition, the invasion of Norway, which occurred in April of 1940. But by then, the effort proved fruitless. In addition, the French invaded the Saarland region of western Germany, a tiny municipality along the German border with France, in the days following the invasion of Poland. The plan initially called for forty divisions, three mechanized divisions, one armored division, and some forty tank battalions with seventy-eight artillery regiments to aid the Polish people by attacking Germany's poorly defended western front. Though some thirty divisions ultimately made it to the French-German border at Saarland, with some even crossing it, the attack ended up never taking place. With Poland quickly secured and consolidated under Nazi rule, Germany was able to reinforce its fronts and borders with returning troops, thus causing the French to withdraw during a German counteroffensive that took place on October 17th that same year. As previously stated, for eight months between September of 1939 and April of 1940... Little actual fighting took place between the combined Anglo-French forces and their German adversaries. But the so-named Phoney War came to a crashing halt when, on May 10, 1940, Germany invaded Belgium, the Netherlands, and France. Leaping into action, the British Expeditionary Force, French field armies, and Belgian forces rushed to defend France and the Low Countries from the onslaught. No sooner had they done so did three Panzer Corps, so-called for the type of German tank utilized at the time, attack the Allied armies through the Ardennes Forest, a heavily wooded region of northern France near the French-Belgian border, and began driving them northwest towards the English Channel. By May 21st, the Germans had pushed the Allies all the way to France's northwest coast, virtually trapping them as they were surrounded by open sea on one side and the enemy on the other. General Viscount Gort, the commander of the British Expeditionary Force, arrived at the conclusion that an evacuation across the channel to the safety of England, a mere 44.3 miles, 71.29 kilometers away, was the most viable means of escape, and quickly began drawing up a plan of withdrawal at nearby Dunkirk, the nearest port on that remote stretch of French coastline. Upon receiving word that the British expeditionary force was trapped along the French coast, the British government quickly set Operation Dynamo in motion. This plan, which was spearheaded by Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsay at the Royal Navy's headquarters at Dover Castle in southeast England, was originally intended to rescue British troops, and, as such, French forces were not initially notified of the maneuver. No sooner were the orders carried out were Royal Navy ships dispatched to Dover for the evacuation. On May 21st, Brigadier Gerald Whitfield was sent to Dunkirk to begin the preliminary process of evacuating all unnecessary personnel, that is, those not asked to stay behind to aid in the rescue effort. What ensued was a messy, chaotic undertaking in which several officers and men, due to a shortage of food and water, desperately began filling the boats. So numerous were they that the brigadier didn't even have the opportunity to vet them all, and thus send them back to England. Those who remained were ordered by Prime Minister Winston Churchill on May 22nd to reconnect with the remainder of the French forces, who, under the command of General Georges Blanchard, attacked the encroaching Germans due south of their current location. But this move ultimately proved fruitless. Three days later, General Gort, along with Blanchard's forces, retreated to the Lille Canal, a tiny part of an immense canal system that connected with the sea at nearby Gravelines, and opened the sluice gates to flood the system and create a barrier to halt the German advance. But, despite these efforts, the situation became increasingly more dire. By May 24th, the Germans had captured the northern port town of Boulogne, and shortly thereafter had surrounded Calais, yet another strategically important port along the French coast. In addition, the canal system had been breached thanks to the army engineers of the 2nd Panzer Division under General-Mayor Rudolf Weil, who ordered the construction of five bridges over the canal line to finish off the British. However, the area surrounding Dunkirk was notoriously marshy, and on May 23rd, at the suggestion of one general Gunther von Kluge, the Panzer Division was ordered to halt over fears that the tanks would not be suitable for such conditions. With the German army's own supplies dwindling, Hitler was apprehensive to send the troops even further. But, when Air Marshal Hermann Göring suggested the employment of the Luftwaffe to pick off the stranded allies at Dunkirk, the Führer ran with it. So it was that, on May 25th, Hitler issued what was known as Directive 13, calling upon the Luftwaffe to prevent the Allies' escape. Luckily, however, the order was sent uncoded and intercepted by British intelligence, and, in turn, sent to the Royal Air Force, who dispatched Spitfire pilots to take down any and all enemy aircraft in the area. One day later, on May 26th, the evacuations at Dunkirk began. The rescue efforts were undertaken amidst some of the most chaotic conditions of the war. On the day in question, floods of civilian refugees evacuated in the opposite direction, that is, inland from Dunkirk, while the roads were often blocked by several abandoned vehicles, such as tanks. At exactly 7 p.m. GMT, however, Prime Minister Winston Churchill ordered the start of Operation Dynamo. The initial goal was to withdraw some 45,000 BEF servicemen within two days, at which time it was anticipated that the Germans would block any further evacuations. By the end of the second day, though, that is, May 27th, only 25,000 had been safely evacuated, with a total of 7,669 being extracted the first day alone. Within this period, one cruiser, eight destroyers, and some 26 other vessels had been employed in the rescue. But these ships obviously couldn't pull straight up to the beach. With time being of an essence, naval officers were forced to comb the beaches and nearby boatyards for small, stray craft they could use to ferry the men onto the larger vessels. In light of this situation, an emergency call was put out for additional aid, to which the British public responded by offering their own small civilian and commercial boats, some 400 in total, to take part in the rescue effort. To add to an already stressful situation, the Luftwaffe attacked Dunkirk that same day, both the beaches and the adjacent town. As a result, about a thousand civilians lost their lives, accounting for a whopping one-third of the town's remaining population. The RAF squadrons that had been dispatched to Dunkirk were soon sent to patrol the skies over the English Channel to thwart any incoming enemy fire, thus protecting the evacuation fleet. In all, sixteen squadrons were called, taking down thirty-eight enemy planes and losing fourteen of their own in the process. But the Germans were not to be deterred. In those first two days alone, they attacked Dunkirk in 12 raids, dropping 30,000 incendiary bombs and 15,000 high explosives that virtually destroyed the harbor. Fortunately, however, the Allies were given a brief respite when the Luftwaffe retreated to focus their attention on nearby Calais instead. Seizing the opportunity and wasting no time, they continued their rescue operations. On May 28th, the Belgian army, which had been defending the land east of Dunkirk, surrendered to Nazi forces. This left a huge gap in defensive positions, and British units were dispatched to defend the area. Miraculously, even fewer Luftwaffe raids were carried out that day, as they shifted their focus to the Belgian ports of Newport and Ostend instead. May 28th also saw the arrival of 17,804 Allied soldiers at several British ports along the English Channel. The following day, however, proved to be one of the bloodiest. Though 47,130 British troops were rescued. The British destroyer HMS Grenade was sunk by Luftwaffe pilots, and a French destroyer, the Mistral, was heavily crippled in the melee. Still other French ships, each equipped with 500 men, were greatly damaged by near misses, while British destroyers Jaguar and Verity managed to escape the harbor despite having taken severe artillery fire. Others weren't so fortunate. The HMS Crested suffered a direct hit and went down with several casualties. A passenger steamer, the SS Fenella, on the other hand, despite having gone down by a pier, managed to successfully unload all 600 of its men before sinking. By May 30th, all British units at Dunkirk, along with more than half of the French First Army, were safely behind defensive lines. But with the docks and piers in the harbor having been rendered useless by German attacks, Churchill and the Royal Navy had to think of another way to evacuate the remaining troops. Senior naval officer Captain William Tennant proposed that the men be evacuated from the beaches. When this proved too slow a venture, however, he resorted to two long concrete and stone breakwaters at opposite ends of the beach, known as the East and West Moles, to complete the mission. While the Moles were not designed to dock ships, they nevertheless served as the disembarkation points for a majority of the remaining soldiers. Over the ensuing five days, nearly 200,000 troops departed from the East Mole, which jutted nearly a mile, 1.6 kilometers, out to sea. Peer Master James Campbell Clouston, a Canadian officer in the British Royal Navy, oversaw and helped the men onto the waiting ships. Thanks to adverse weather, low clouds and some fog, interference from the Luftwaffe was kept at a minimum. To be safe, nine Royal Air Force patrols were at the ready, though they were met with no resistance. That day, a total of 53,823 men, including French troops, disembarked for Britain. But the following day, May 31st, the Luftwaffe returned, firing on all cylinders. One of the transports was sunk and 12 others were damaged. Through it all, however, General Viscount Gort, the commander of the British Expeditionary Force, as well as 68,104 men were safely evacuated. An additional 64,429 allies departed on June 1st. But increased aerial attacks by the Luftwaffe made daytime evacuations virtually impossible. Over the next three days, the final days of Operation Dynamo, rescue efforts took place under cover of night. The British rearguard of some 4,000 men, for example, disembarked in the late night and early morning hours of June 2nd and 3rd, respectively. And 75,000 French soldiers were rescued between the nights of June 2nd and 4th, bringing the mission to its end. On June 4th, Prime Minister Winston Churchill delivered a rousing speech to the House of Commons in the British Parliament, in which he lauded the evacuation at Dunkirk as, quote, a miracle of deliverance, unquote, but he was vehement in not referring to Operation Dynamo as a military victory. We must be very careful not to assign this deliverance the attributes of a victory, he said. Wars are not won by evacuations. Despite this stern decree, though, he firmly reassured the public. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Of the 355,226 soldiers initially stranded on the beaches of Dunkirk, 338,226 returned safely. In all, an estimated 16,000 French troops and an additional 1,000 British troops lost their lives in the rescue effort. Of those successfully evacuated, several hundred were unarmed Indian mule herders from the Royal Indian Army Service Corps, then a division of the British Army, muleteers from Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean, three units of which were successfully evacuated and one captured by the enemy, as well as a small number of French, Senegalese, and Moroccan troops. While the Allies' initial situation at Dunkirk was dubbed a colossal military disaster by the likes of Churchill and others, it nevertheless was a true miracle that so many men were rescued from the Germans' clutches. To this day, the Dunkirk evacuation is considered one of the greatest feats in military history, and was, in fact, a major turning point in the war. Had the outcome been different, it's quite possible that Europe, as well as the conflict, would have been lost. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If you're curious to learn more about the Dunkirk evacuation, check out the brilliant documentary, Dunkirk, The Great Escape, 1990, on YouTube, as well as Christopher Nolan's phenomenal war epic, Dunkirk, 2017. The former gathers interviews from several veterans who were actually present during the historic event, while the latter is a dramatic retelling of a critical moment in World War II history. Both are excellent and come highly recommended by yours truly. If you enjoyed this episode and wish to support me to ensure future quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There you'll find three monthly support plans that fit your budget and financial situation. You can listen to this podcast wherever podcasts are available, so be sure to listen, like, and share. Tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for another all-new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.